Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Hey, Erin, have you heard that we have a promotional code for SpeechTherapyPD.com? I think I heard the same thing. Yes. So <laughs> as if we both hadn't heard that. <laughs> but um, it's first bite. So if you log on to speechtherapypd.com and enter the promotional code first bite, it takes $10 off an annual subscription. And Aaron, do that you want to? includes all the pod courses. Yes. And we have four now. I'm not sure if y'all knew that. We have four. We have first we have bite. Yeah, we do. It's speech uncensored. Um, and in case y'all haven't heard of this lovely lady, she focuses on adults. And I know that there's a fair few of you out there that PRN impedes and or PRN in adults. So be sure to check out Speech Uncensored. And it also includes the speech link and the SLP Now podcast with Miss Marisha, who I like fangirl crush. She's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay. All right. So promo code is first bite. Whoop. Whoop. And don't let it autocorrect you to B-Y-T-E because it does it did that to me a couple times. So Woo-hoo. there it is. Woohoo! <laughs> Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite. Fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention, right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Happy Halloween, y'all. I'm not going to lie. This past week was a whirlwind for Aaron and I both. And um, I can undoubtedly say this week is shaping up to be another one just like the last. So we appreciate the time that y'all are taking out to listen between all the trick-or-treating, costume buying, pumpkin painting, and last-minute school book projects because, yup, um, Sir Goose Danger Dawson earned himself an A, or at least his mama did, for not hot-gluing either one of us to a pumpkin tonight in the process of turning the pumpkin into dog man. So, go team! <laughs> On that note, I am so excited about tonight's fed and functional episode because this is a topic that's extremely near and dear to Aaron and I's heart. Tonight, we are covering all things pediatric dysphagia for little ones who have Down syndrome. In truth, I can't help but feel that an hour is not going to allocate the time that this topic truly deserves. So I kind of sort of reckon that we'll probably come back in the next couple weeks or months for a part two of this episode, but we're going to go for at least getting as much covered as we can now. Uh, We're going to start by dipping into the aerodigestive tract, 
And then we're going to go into underlying cardiac conditions and GI conditions and how these can negatively impact a child and either directly result in an oropharyngeal or esophageal dysphagia or how it can contribute to a feeding disorder or aversion. Now, lastly, before we switch to question, I want to give everybody a heads up. I'm going to be covering this specific topic live at ASHA in Orlando, Florida on Saturday, November 23rd, 2019 at 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time in session 1984 in room CC340A. So if you're at ASHA, then swing by Saturday night and let's spend a nerdy hour together or pop by the speechtherapypd.com booth number 449 and say hi as Erin and I will both be popping by periodically to volunteer. So on that um, super nerdy and um, fun opener, Miss Erin, I am so freaking proud of you for going to Richmond, but at the same time, like, Pac Dawson is missing you dearly. So, um, good Lord. <laughs> How is life, baby? <laughs> life is exhausting, but good. <laughs> the depths of exhaustion in your voice right there. You have coffee, right, friend? <laughs> I do. My husband has a really fancy coffee maker, so that helps a little bit. Nice. And is Miss Cola Kitty enjoying her time in the new city? She is. She likes being on her own. She's a queen. Doesn't have to share her time with the other kitties. No, she doesn't. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> well, I mean, I'm glad. I'm glad Virginia is treating you well, there, friend. <laughs> uh, okay. All right. So um, let's let's get started, woman, because we got a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> okay. Um. So let's start with unique considerations for a child with Down syndrome with respect to their airway, because as we all know, respiration comes first. Yes. I found myself saying that a lot at work. Yes. But respiration comes first. Respiration will always come first because you need to breathe in order to eat. Um, You'd be surprised how many people don't know that, but you know. (laughs) (laughs) You work at the children's. Oh my God, Erin. All right. Let me stop myself. Thank goodness I tinkled before I um, we started recording. Otherwise, that would have been a tinkle peak. Good Lord. That's what children do to your body. Anybody that's listening, if you don't have children yet, sneeze, pee, and die hard belly laugh is a legit thing. So um, there it is. You've been warned. Okay. All right. This is probably my favorite topic um, like in the th- questions that we're going to cover today. So this is a super, super long-winded answer. Um, and everybody out there, I um, if you were in New Mexico this past weekend, then you heard this from me. But like, play nice. Don't spoil the answers for your friends and um, play along. So go team. Yay. Um, all right. When I explain um, craniofacial and aerodigestive tract issues to um, either fellow clinicians or uh, or a physician, if you're doing like, an, if you ever have the opportunity for the in-service, I always explain this as my Grand Canyon analogy. Okay, um, I don't know why exactly washing my hair with some rose shampoo gave me this brilliant thought process, but it did. So thank you, rose shampoo. Um, but I feel like the children that we work with that have um, Down syndrome. I feel like what we're seeing is a series of events, um, specifically with their aerodigestive tract, where one thing leads to another thing, triggers another thing, much like the Grand Canyon was formed over a millennia. It was a freeze-thaw cycle in the mud, cracking and drying it out. Um, it was the wind whipping down the, the caverns that dug it farther down, and it was the weight and gravity of the, of the river, of the water, digging it deeper. So I think what we're seeing with our little ones that have Down syndrome is a Grand Canyon of airway chaos, for lack of a better phrase. Okay, so Erin, I'm going to guinea pig you in this process because I, I'm trying. We should have FaceTime this. That way I could like, because I, I need the, the biofeedback, right? Okay, so the first thing that we think of with our little ones that have Down syndrome is hypotonia or should be the low tone. This hypotonia is pervasive. 
So if it's safe for you where you're listening to sit, I mean, if you're driving, you get a free pass, Um, but sit down in your seat and then kind of roll your shoulders and relax your upper body. Okay. When this happens, your, and you um, imitate that hypotonia position, your mouth is naturally going to fall open and your tongue will fall forward. Erin, I really feel like mm-hmm. that's a killer picture that we should both selfie. Just saying. Okay. <laughs> Wait. I'm going to pull my camera up for this one. Dun, dun, dun. Done. <laughs> okay. So in that position, um, our little ones end up becoming obligatory mouth breathers. Okay. And it's it, it's not that they were necessarily born as an obligatory mouth breather, but with that low tone, it pulls everything anteriorly. And our little ones that have Down syndrome are known for having hypertrophy of their adenoids um, or their tonsillar tissues. Okay. And remember, we have the three sets of tonsils. We have the palatine tonsils. Technically, your adenoids are a form of tonsils, um, lingual tonsils, and um, Yep, those are the three, palatine, adenoid, and the lingual ones, okay? If your adenoid tissue becomes very enlarged, it blocks the air flowing through your nasopharynx, and then you can't breathe through your mouth, so you become an obligatory mouth breather. So the larger your adenoid tissue is, the more you're going to open your mouth to move the air, all right? I have one little guy that I've worked with that has had his adenoids removed four times, Okay, four times because they can grow back until you're roughly four or five years of age. Okay, Um, all right. Now, I don't think what we're seeing in these kiddos is macroglossia. And like, everybody like wants to throw like the rotten tomatoes and or like questionable stares at me, but I don't think it's macroglossia or an enlarged tongue. I think what we're seeing is micronanthia because of our Pierre Robin sequence literature. So with PRS, you end up having a little one who during like the microbial soup stage of the pregnancy, their chin got tucked up on their chest. So if everybody, if you'll put your chin all the way down to your chest when you do that, not only do you like rock out your amazing double, triple chins, but um, you'll feel your tongue pop up out of your floor of your mouth. Okay. I take another break. Did you just take a great picture? Because I just took an absolutely lovely picture of that. <laughs> <laughs> That's hideous. We have to do a redo. Okay. So I'm trying to like explain these positions so that, and I feel, I feel like visual imagery of triple chins will help. Okay. So, um, I should not have eaten so much at Albuquerque. <laughs> All right. So when your tongue, when with our PRS kids, when your chin is down into your chest, it forces your tongue when it's forming to grow up into where the palate will be, which is why our kiddos that have PRS have a very wide U-shaped palate and they tend to have um, glossiopetosis or posterior anchoring of the tongue. And that's just because of how they were structurally formed. Okay. Now, with our little ones that have Down syndrome, when you have hypertrophy of the adenoids or tonsillar tissues, your and you have hypotonia, your jaw is going to relax forward, your tongue naturally goes anteriorly, and your tongue won't fill up the floor of the mouth, just like how you felt it when you were imitating the PRS position, okay? Your tongue is an incredibly fast-growing muscle. If your tongue is not laying or fully anchored into the mandible, it will not stimulate the mandibular growth plates. So the mandible has no way of keeping up with the tongue. So we end up seeing the reverse. It's not macroglossia so much as it is micronanthia. Okay, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. As a result of the anterior placement of the tongue. Yes. Like when comparative to the Pierroban syndrome, like that because of the their adenoids, their mandible then isn't allowed to grow in the way that it should. 
Yes. Okay. So enlarged adenoids cause the tongue to be pushed forward and in an open mouth position that causes the tongue to pop up because they're out of the floor of the mouth because they're trying to breathe. And then the mandible isn't stimulated because the tongue is not there for growth. Yes. And that's important too, like with you talking about it is natural when you tuck your chin for your tongue to go to the roof of your mouth. But that is because if you, even if you close your mouth when your chin isn't tucked, try to breathe with the tongue at towards your mandible. Like it's a lot harder to do so if you're trying to breathe, you're, you'll stick that tongue up um, to your palate, which is why I get frustrated when people, you know, don't understand that a lot of times when kids are refusing by placing, pushing their tongue up, they're also just trying to breathe. Yes. Yes. 110%. Okay. Now you just talked on the, touched on the other part. The next part is that narrow, short, high palate. Mm -hmm. You just described it. When your mouth is, everybody close your mouth tight. When your mouth is closed tight, do you feel the tongue across the surface of the palate? Mm -hmm. When your mouth is, and that that wide, your palate is wide because your tongue is there. But when your tongue is up and interiorly and your mouth is open, you can't get that proper positioning of the palate. Mm Mm-hmm. No, you, um, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you're not integrating the tongue protrusion reflex. So then you have tongue thrusting past nine months developmental norm age when it should have been fully integrated and bada boom, bada bing. Yay. Okay. All right. See, I really get excited about this because it makes perfect sense because it all rolls together. Okay. So enlarged adenoids cause micronanthia, not macroglossia. That contributes to the high palate, very narrow palate. Our little ones tend to have mid-face hypoplasia, so they have very narrow nose bridges. Mm-hmm. And the nasal turbinates, the thing that we run the scope down, um, they tend to be incredibly narrow. And a lot of our little ones that have Down syndrome end up having nasal turbinate reduction in order to offset obstructive sleep apnea. And not necessarily, I mean, they may end up having to have their adenoids out. They um, may end up having a uh, supraglottoplasty to offset, um, laryngomalacia, trachomalacia, which we'll cover in a second, but also, um, they typically end up needing, um, uh, their turbinates reduced as well because breathing, like you said, breathing is the most important thing that we do. Um, all of this, Erin, do you snore? No, I mean, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think that I do, but Mr. Dawson says that I do. And I definitely snorted myself awake on more than one occasion. But if you snore, and I don't, I mean, you know, now you're like, I'm going to have to record myself (laughs) sleeping. (laughs) Okay. So if you snore, you typically wake up with dry mouth. If you open mouth breathe, that's probably indicative that you snore. And most of our little ones that, um, have, um, hypertrophy of their adenoids end up snoring because they end up having obstructive sleep apnea, they have reduced saliva. So they get end up having xerostoma or a really dry mouth. And the xerostoma or the reduced saliva triggers periodontal disease. And we all know that our little ones that have Down syndrome are at increased risk for cavities. Okay. So is, are you, or am I good there? I'm going, I feel like I'm going so fast because I want to make sure we cover it all, but like, I feel no, like I'm talking. I'll clarify if there's something Okay. I think I still might have altitude sickness because today I was kind of dizzy. How long does that last? I have no idea. I don't know. I don't know. I'll have, I'll have to do the Google one. <laughs> okay. All right. So we have xerostoma, periodontal disease, and that gets us to bruxism. Okay. <laughs> I do not take bruxism, bruxism or the teeth grinding as indicative of TMJ. Um, I do have I, TMJ though. <laughs> you, you do have TMJ, but, um, and I have a theory as to why you have TMJ, but that, yes, that's, that's an after podcast, um, theory. <laughs> I love you. Okay. So with the bruxism, um, I think what we're hearing the teeth grinding, grinding on about is I don't think that the little ones have the um, verbal capacity, either spoken or um, they haven't developed 
that um, cognitive um, capabilities yet to tell us that their teeth hurt or their jaw hurts, okay? Because if you get on the National Down Syndrome Society's website and you look at developmental norms, the developmental norms for two-word acquisition of speech can be anywhere from two years, I'm sorry, um, three years of age to four years of age for a little one that has Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And that's the typical acquisition. But I mean, if we have to look at what they're telling us without actually telling us. Right. So you have TMJ and your jaw, it like cracks, right? Because I've seen you do the wiggle. Yeah, every like once what? in a while it gets stuck and that's terrifying. It gets stuck? Well, you got, yeah, like if you, if I'm like, like when I went scuba diving, I got nervous. And so when you bite on the mouthpiece, like my jaw was very tense. So I had to like push in to that bone where they're fused and like kind of help work my jaw open again. Oh my God. Yeah. So that's horrible. A little scary, but it's okay. You know, (laughs) just terrifying, but we're fine. Okay. But I mean, imagine that for our little ones. Right. And a lot of our little ones that have Down syndrome, their temporomandibular joint is incredibly misaligned. Because if you are, if your mouth is opened almost all day long Mm -hmm. for respiration, okay, Um, and then a well-meaning clinician comes along and says, hey, guys, I want you to close your mouth so we can work on chewing. I mean, your jaw is going to pop and or get locked. So as you just so lovingly described, so I think... I think what we're seeing with these kids, I think the bruxism is a telltale sign of that, either cavities mm-hmm. and pain or the fact that their TMJ is misal- or their templomandibular joint is misaligned. Okay. So we've got all these things leading to other things. And then you add in the fact that a lot of these children end up having um, uh, laryngomalacia or tracheomalacia, which we have talked at length about, but the Best way to summarize this is that um, with laryngomalacia, they have an omega-shaped epiglottis, so it's not the typical shape. And um, basically, the laryngeal vestibule, your and your um, your vocal folds are very heavy and endemitous, and they close in on each other. The epiglottis lays over and touches down. With tracheomalacia, even the upper portion of the trachea um, closes in on itself. The hallmark sound is. Um, Aaron, how do you say that word? Sturder? Sturder. Sturder. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or even like I had a patient that like he sounded like an old man when he breathed. Like it was <laughs> like even – no, literally <laughs> that's what he sounded like. But you did that so freaking perfectly. Like on ingrained in my brain because the poor kid – and it was always when he would be sitting up to, um, to work on feeding or to work on um, – his eye gaze device and he went to see someone and they didn't seem to think anything was wrong even after listening to him breathe. But um, yeah, it's kind of like trachomalacia especially I feel like is, I mean, that sound is forever ingrained because you can just feel them struggling to breathe. Um, And one thing that I have noticed is that in some kids, it sounds as deep as what you said. And then in other kids, it sounds squeaky. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I don't, can, I don't, can you do that squeaky? I can't do that squeaky. Like, yeah. Like, um, oh my gosh, coming home on the airplane on the very last, right after we landed, there was this brand new baby who couldn't have been, but I don't know, four or six weeks old. And like I was trying not to be the SLP on the plane and I'm listening to this otherwise typically developing looking baby having that tiny squeak and the baby started crying and couldn't calm down because mm-hmm. it sounded like, and I'm thinking, oh my God, that poor kid's like larynx is just collapsing. And it was like, you could see the cycle of him getting worked up about it. And then, and finally he just like quit crying. And I was like, is he still breathing? Is he still breathing? And so I like peeked around behind me and yes, he was breathing, but he had just like passed out. And I was like, he probably hyperventilated. I mean, I know I'm overreacting, but like, that's how horrifying it was. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Okay, and huge soapbox on this one. Um, uh, hold on. Miss Amy, I know you're listening. Miss Amy in New Mexico, you were 100 gabillion thousand percent right. Miss Amy was said one of her tiny humans went to the doctors, and the doctor looked at the kid and said, oh, you don't have laryngomalacia by looking at the child. Y'all, looking at like the, the outside of the child? Yes, outside. Maybe he has x-ray superpower. Oh, he has borrowed bears. I mean, he must. (laughs) Okay. Total frustration (laughs) here. We cannot diagnose silent aspiration. We can't diagnose it without an instrumental swallowing exam. You cannot diagnose um, laryngomalacia or trachomalacia or the severity of that unless you put a scope in there and look at what's going on, Okay. Because some kids may have the quietest kitten-like purr, and they only may make it positional. Like I had one mm-hmm. patient a couple of years ago who did have Down syndrome, um, and he, his laryngomalacia was when he was in a car seat because of the way the angle of the car seat, like his head would like tilt forward mm-hmm. um, and like block the airway. And um, doctor said he was fine. He was going to outgrow it. I mean, he didn't. He ended up needing a supraglottoplasty, but... It didn't sound that bad. If you just looked at him, we had to get a scope in there. We had to get a second opinion, and then we had to get a scope. So, um, Amy, keep fighting the good fight. You got this, girl. (laughs) But, like, yeah. And all of that inhibits the aero portion of the aerodigestive tract. So how does that correlate to an oral pharyngeal dysphagia? Everybody that's listening right now, pinch your nose, close your lips, and try to swallow. I can't do it without having to crack my ears. Okay. Yeah, that's how I try and get rid of the hiccups. Does it work? No. <laughs> I was thinking. Um, the boys are pretty sure if you stand on your head that that gets rid of the hiccups. Neither one of my children are gifted enough to do a handstand. <laughs> so, like, uh, okay. But when we go to put a bottle in an infant or a newborn's mouth and it fills their entire oral cavity, and we see them arching and turning away from the bottle. And in um, a hospital setting, they could be destatting. Um, uh, in a home health setting or an outpatient clinic, we could see their oxygen levels drop if they have an O2 monitor. Or we could see their nares, um, their nostrils or their nares flaring. And the little ones getting really agitated. Those we would crack up to an oral stage dysphagia. That would contribute to what we would... Um, write down as an immature suck pattern, but it's an immature suck pattern because tiny human can't breathe. Um, We can't fix this. We are reliant upon a really awesome ENT to go in and actually clean out the aerodigestive tract. And that can be very difficult and frustrating to find. But absolutely critical nonetheless. So that's it. That's my Grand Canyon analogy that I got when I was washing my hair. One thing leading to another thing leading to an aerodigestive tract issue. But that is, I think, hard because it's not like a quick answer. I think a lot of people saying they have macroglossia is a lot more of a simple reasoning to what's going on whereas like we just talked through how many different things yes but that's that's not intuitive that's not easy there's a lot of things you have to fix in that aspect yes but you don't fix them they're just if you don't work on things like that and discover the actual etiology, then they're just going to develop worse compensatory strategies and it will impact even more. So, Yeah, such as major feeding aversions, which can contribute to protein, vitamin D, calcium, iron deficiency later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This is, Y'all, this is probably the hardest part that we do is getting our little ones that have Down syndrome to a really amazing ENT. 
I highly recommend that um, if your gut tells you that something's wrong, advocate, fight like a mother, fight like an SLP and mm-hmm. keep going back. And yes, it's incredibly frustrating. And trust me, I can't tell you how many times I came home from work and like Aaron and I would split a glass of wine on a Friday night and I would just like cry because I was so heartbroken or Aaron's Italian would flare and <laughs> they'd be stomping a feet, but like. Well, and not all are like, we all, we deal with children with special needs, like, but not all ENTs deal with children with special needs. Not all yes. pediatricians deal with children with special needs. I think that's what I learned very quickly is that the frustration of sometimes not getting the answers that you want or them saying these kids were going to grow out of it or that everything was fine when in reality, you know, that's not the case, but just as speech therapists specialize in different things, I think that's something to consider too. Perfect. Um, I never thought of it that way. We see special needs all day long and they may not. Yeah. They may get just the kid with the, you know, goose needed tubes or like, you're a freaking genius. I never saw it from that from that lens. <sighs> I'm very wise. Yeah. I'm just- <laughs> <laughs> just oh my god! Please tell your mother happy belated birthday, and she gave birth to a very wise wise daughter. Uh, my daddy might put another word after that when he was when he describes you and I, but. <laughs> okay Uh, yes all right continue because we just spent 30 minutes on the first question and I feel like that was it was alas continue friend so moving on from the arrow portion kind of um what are some common cardiac conditions that children with down syndrome have and how does it impact feeding and swallowing okay all right see this one takes like 30 seconds comparatively speaking okay The first one is atrial ventricular septal defect. The second one is persistent ductus arteriosus. And the third is tetralogy of filet or tetralogy de filet. Okay, so those are three different um, conditions. Um, uh, ASD, PDAs, and normally I just see tetralogy. Okay, I don't normally see um, T-E-T-R-A-L-O-G-Y, and it's French, F-A-L-L-O-T. I don't normally see that as often in our little ones that have Down syndrome, um, but that is incredibly common in your little ones that have velocardia, facial syndrome, DeGeorge's anomaly, or 22Q11.2 deletion. Tetralogy of filet is big, bad, ugly. Um, This one, you have to be a certain size um, in order to survive the surgery. Uh, And the downside of this one is while you're trying to um, get, while you're trying to put mass on the baby so that they can survive the surgery, you have to monitor how they go blue. When they go blue, they go blue typically from their extremities in. So looking at like the tips of their fingers or the tips of their feet, and it works their way up. I mean, novice us the first time out, I can guarantee the first time I saw it, I was like, oh my God, they're going apneic on the bottle. Um, They have lost, um, uh, they, they, we need, we're coding, what is happening. And, you know, I started panicking because hmm, I have all the, uh, all the anxiety, but in truth, it's actually more, um, indicative of their heart condition. And so this is one of those cases where you have to be, uh, able to have a quick communication with the pediatrician and explain to them, Hey, when we were on the bottle after so many ounces, I noticed that the the blue extremities had um, gone up farther into their hand or farther up into their feet when than they did last time, if that makes sense. Um, and again, it's really, really major heart surgery, but I have not seen it as high as the PDAs. So we have our so we cover tetralogy de Valais, we have atrioventricular septal defect, 
Um, let me hit PDAs. So the persistent ductus arteriosus, I've also seen it written as patent ductus arteriosus. It's um, a hole in the heart, okay? Now here's the trick. The holes in a heart are incredibly common. Even typically developing children are born with holes in hearts. Um, they are um, typically monitored by a cardiologist and then they close on their own unless they don't. And I have had a couple little ones that the holes in the heart were so large, I mean, more than like a pinpoint, you know, they were so large that they required surgery. But one little guy in particular went into congestive heart failure because he had so much fluid build up around his heart because of two PDAs. And I mean, it was, it was bad. He got medevac down to Charleston to have open heart surgery and the whole nine yards. But, um, I say this because the kiddos that have, um, that have PDAs that go to that extreme, you'll hear them get prescribed Lasix. I mean, we, when we hear the word Lasix, we think of like, good Lord, my grandma called it her water pill. You know, like my grandma was on Lasix. Like we hear little old people on Lasix for fluid retention and that's like a diuretic and it helps them urinate to get extra mm-hmm. fluid out of their I mean, a lot of our NICU babies will be put on Lasix. Yes, yes. And, but if we're not, um, if we're not used to looking at medical charts and unfortunately in the home health world, we rarely get access to medical records. We not, might not be familiar, but this is one of those things uh, when it's so we, important to know. Yes, you need got, to know if they have. A if heart they're heart. on Lasix, then we are not doing good. And there's there's a lot of different cardiac medications that are just not common in our world, right? Um, they're not like I'm more used to seeing ranitidine on a, for a kid than I am Lasix, but. This is one of those things that please, please, please do a chart review. Please, please, please ask the family. I've gotten to the point where I just um, line all their medicines up, scan them in my cam scan, email them um, directly, like upload them directly into the patient file online. That way I have, you know, I've got a picture with the prescription name and then I go in and I manually type everything in. But uh, that, that helps me. Plus, I can't spell. When a mom says what they're on and then she starts spelling it very quickly, I'm like, in and out. So, um, yes. Okay. So, that's PDAs. Oh, also, last soap note on the PDAs. Y'all, my husband cannot hear. Christian Dawson cannot hear in public out of his right ear. Also, please don't tell him that I said that that loudly and frustratedly. I have to stand on the left side of him when we're in public to kind of like – help him float the conversation. Will he go get his hearing looked at? No, because he's a man. Okay. Now that's comedic and true, but what about our tiny human or what about our um, pediatricians? We have a lot of aging pediatricians that may not know that they have hearing loss. And we know because we are speech pathologists and audiologists that hearing, we lose frequencies as we age. So we're relying on those ears to listen through a stethoscope to rule out a murmur, which is indicative of a PDA. They simply may not be able to hear it, which is like a horrifying thought. So in my humble opinion, until you get your tiny little one with Down syndrome to a cardiologist and get ultrasound or imaging, I just... I'd rather err on the side of caution. Mm-hmm. Know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. All right. Aaron, you have H- the, the, the big one that I can't say. Atrioventricular septal defect. Yes. Um, cool. This one is also when there are holes, but these holes are specifically between the chambers of the right and left sides of the heart and the valves that control the flow of blood between those chambers it may affect those. They may not be formed correctly. Um, so blood flows where it normally shouldn't go. Uh, they may have a lower than normal amount of oxygen and it can, the extra blood can also flow into the lungs, which can make your lungs work harder, which can make it harder to breathe. And so in a way the heart, I mean, can greatly affect the respiratory system too. 
a lot of these, most of these require surgery. Um, and it can have, I mean, it can have a ton of effects like breathing problems, poor feeding, slow weight gain. These kids get really tired. It's really hard to pump blood. Like if your heart is working extra hard, they're going to get exhausted. These are the kids that you really have to watch out, especially when they're feeding on a bottle when they're so little because they're going to get really tired. You don't want them to Brady. You, you know, need to be very mindful of the fact that like they're working so hard. They're probably burning a lot of calories just trying to live. And so I think that's really important. Okay. So can you, can you explain that, um, have an, experience bradycardia what bradycardia is um it's kind of, it's terrifying because their heart rate <laughs> that's, slows that's a great down. analogy started right out the gate it's terrifying i mean okay. your your heart rate slows and your heart is what keeps you alive so like i mean i know that a lot of times in nicu's if a kid brady's like even if they're getting ready to leave there's a certain number of days that they then have to stay again to make sure that this child is doing okay and that they're not that's not going to happen again because your blood your heart helps pump oxygen to your blood which is how you breathe so like you know we think about oxygen levels all the time but heart rate is really really important go ahead no, I was just going to say, um, so signs, symptoms of bradycardia, they're, they're turning blue on the mm-hmm. tips, right? Yeah. Shallow breathing and yeah. Mm-hmm. It's all, yeah, it's all really, it's all connected, but these are kids that like, it's not just they're holding their breath because they don't, they're trying to stop the flow or they don't want to, you know, a kid can stop because he's holding his breath or he's just kind of catch up breathing. But when you're bradying, like that's going to affect your respiratory and that's going to, that's harder sometimes to, you know, those are sometimes when the kids require like a little more stim to kind of get back their stats back up and their vitals. Just my heart hurts for these kiddos. Well, and you just, and you just have to, I think the hard part about these kids and the hard part about sometimes like our kids with Down syndrome is you have to meet them where they're at. And I think it is important that you fight this battle of, you know, wanting them to gain weight. We don't want kids to have their tubes, we, but we want them to have pleasurable experiences with feeding. And, and you really have to know every kid is different and you have to know their limits and meet them where they're at. But you do have to be mindful of these things that like might be kind of working against them and, and it, not necessarily working against them, but this is biological. This is their anatomy and physiology, and you can't always fight that. That that comes first. Like feeding is so important, but that's more important. So, an understanding you can't always you you can sometimes fix that, but it may take time. And okay, you you gave an analogy for um, why. A- why a feeding tube should be, um, oh, yes. why it's okay to give a feeding tube. And I butchered it in an episode a while ago when I was trying to explain it. <laughs> but y'all, Car- I tried really hard to do justice to your analogy with the little old people and like OTPT. But um, for well, our patients that have cardiac conditions, mm-hmm. th- it's okay to need a feeding tube temporarily. And Erin, explain your analogy why. Well, it's very easy. It's hard because you can't see it. So someone breaks their leg or sprains their ankle or just gets a shin splint. Like there's different levels of hurt to, you know, a bone or a muscle or something like that. You may wear a cast. You may wear a brace. You may just have to be light on your foot if you break it. That's kind of what a feeding tube is. And a feeding tube also can have different levels. Like the cast would be, we're 
MPO right now, we really need to heal. And then we can start working on getting better. You're not going to send a kid home on a cast and be like, okay, see you never like, good luck. <laughs> Just see you never. But oh my God. You're gonna yeah. the brace is saying like, you need a little extra support, but you can still walk. You may need to have, you know, take a good quality meal. And then what you don't finish goes in the tube. Or you may have a sprain and I guess technically that's more a sprain. But or the sprain maybe you're just kind of giving them thickened liquids or a little more extra help. Yeah, but I think it's it's we wouldn't just we wouldn't have a kid break their leg and just be like, okay, go home, figure it out. Like you should be able to walk. Like this kid has a heart condition and you're trying to shove this food in their mouth and make them take their full bottle, but they sometimes physically can't and that's okay. But we still want them to eventually eat some, we still want that kid to eventually walk. You have to develop a plan that can, you know, if you, like they always tell you, you need to stay off your foot for the longest, that period of time, or it's going to be worse. If you make them eat that food that they're not ready to eat, they're going to have side effects down the road. But I think because you can't see it, that's how we, that's how you burr the feeding aversion. But Go, so sorry. many people and even so many doctors, I don't think understand that because at that point they can just call it behavioral mm-hmm. and that's what they blame it on. And it's not, I mean, okay. sorry. And that, no, beautiful, beautiful squirrel soapbox, all of the above. That's why we have amazing associations like feeding matters that can support, like I freaking love them. They will give you the tools to have those crucial conversations. But yes, I knew I butchered your analogy so bad. I compared it to a gait trainer and a PT helping a person walk. But I had the general Similar. gist something bad I've been happened to the body. It. I've really been perfecting it. <laughs> I love it. Yes. Okay. So, <laughs> yay, Erin. You are wise. <laughs> okay. So those are some, some of the most common cardiac conditions. Mm-hmm. And I hope we've explained how if you, if you, if you are working that hard to pump blood, if your heart is working that hard, then your respirations can change into bradycardia or tachycardia, which is where it's very, very fast um, and very, very shallow, which will increase the likelihood for a- aspiration. And it's all directly correlated back to the heart. Mm-hmm. So, um, okay. All right. Woman. Also, really quickly, if they do have surgery on their heart, be very aware about our lovely friend, the vagus nerve and their risk of silent aspiration because yes. Focal flow as amazing as cardiac surgeons are, that nerve is everywhere and you never know what can happen. So yep. Be yep. Aware. Yep. Absolutely. Oh, yes. Okay. No, you just, I had a kiddo who did not have Down syndrome, but he was, um, uh, oh God, I can't remember uh, something. Basically they rebuilt the left chamber of his heart Uh and, um, he was on a paralytic drip for three months and, uh, he had unilateral vocal fold paralysis and it was because of when they went in and repaired his heart cutest little booger ever oh my gosh he loves spaghetti (laughs) okay squirrel okay making our way further down with 10 minutes 13 minutes to spare (laughs) we're looking at some common gi issues that children with down syndrome face and how it impacts their feeding and swallowing okay Okay, so um, first and foremost, reach out to National Down Syndrome Society, and they have a list of medical considerations that everybody should be aware of, Um, uh, and I am going to humbly suggest that, yes, we start this conversation in infancy, but you follow your um, child who has Down Syndrome's GI tract across their lifespan. Okay. And here's why. First and foremost, hypotonia, that low tone makes it difficult to move or contract their um, abdomen to actually move a poo. Okay. 
I can say poo. We work with little people. Okay. Um, tip number one, some really amazing physical therapists uh, have been taught how to do a gut massage that will actually stimulate uh, the small intestines to move poo, which is pretty cool because there's an amazing um, PT that I work with who went to Ithaca. Am I saying that right? Ithaca? She was from, yeah, she's from your neck of the woods, woman. And she's brilliant. And mom and I were explaining to her about a little one and he couldn't make poo. And she goes, oh, I know a massage. And mom was like, 24 hours later, we filled all the diapers. I was like, congratulations. (laughs) It doesn't always work that way for everybody, but... Yes, please consult with your physical therapist friends, okay? Big picture is that low tone is pervasive everywhere. Now, a lot of our little ones that have Down syndrome will develop hypothyroidism as they age, okay? And it may start in their toddler years. It may start in their childhood. And one of the hallmark characteristics of hypothyroidism is constipation. So if you're not able to poo, is it because of the low tone and you can't contract to move the poo through? Or is it that your body is constipated because it's missing a certain hormone? Okay. So that's where when a family starts making this complaint, we should probably consult GI as well as an endocrinologist. Okay. All right, now we get into the more sticky wicky stuff. Delayed GI motility. It is well documented that our little ones that have Down syndrome have delayed GI motility, even in the esophagus. And folks, the esophageal stage of the swallow is very much within our scope of practice. Please check out the amazing stuff by Tom Franchesney on the esophageal stage of dysphagia. I cannot say that man's last name correctly, but he's just wonderful. But if we're missing the ability, if the enteric nerve system, the nerve system of the GI tract is compromised, it'll be compromised every which way. So it may not contract to move the bolus all the way down the esophagus in a timely manner. The lower esophageal sphincter may not be properly innervated to allow the bolus to pass through, resulting in esophageal echolasia. We may have delayed gastric emptying such that the stomach is not um, stimulated enough to actually allow the food that's being broken down to pass through. So we end up seeing little ones that have significant distension. And then it doesn't move through the small intestines and the large intestines at the rate that it should. Now, is the delayed GI motility due to issues with the enteric nerve system? Or is the delayed GI motility... I mean, we could have little ones that have exocrine pancreatic insufficiency where the pancreas isn't creating enough digestive enzymes to break foods down. Uh, Has their liver been actually looked at because your liver plays a significant part in digestion as well? Or does a little one have Hirschsprung's disease? In Hirschsprung's disease, I get so frustrated because I've had a couple GIs tell me, oh, well... It's not Hirschsprung's. We would have diagnosed that at birth. No, because we used to work under the misinformation. Hirschsprung's disease is worth theoretically the final 2 to 5% of the GI tract, not properly. Um, the nerve cells are not actually there to stimulate, to actually move the poo. But that's not accurate. It has to do with the ganglion cells and where they um, inlay within the GI tract within the um, small intestines. And sometimes it's actually farther up in the system. And and sometimes, I mean, I have one little one who had to have a colostomy bag loss, part of her colon and a good chunk of her small intestines. And when they did the surgery, it's called a pull through and they actually pulled it all the way through. I mean, she lost a significant amount, way more than the two to 5%. And then in order to actually have a successful bowel movement, for the first 18 months of her life, her family had to do um, rectal stimulation and or suppository. So uh, there's extreme cases like that. And then there's cases where the the cells are absent, but they're sporadically absent. So I humbly suggest let's not rule out Hirschsprung's disease until we've actually done a biopsy and some x-rays to see where the poo is getting stuck. 
And I feel very, very strongly about that. But this is just my humble opinion um, for what it is. Okay. And then celiac disease. Okay. So with celiac disease, this is an autoimmune disease. And there is literature out, and I don't have the numbers handy right this second, um, but there is literature out that some of our little ones that have Down syndrome are carriers for uh, celiac, for lack of a better phrase. And it, when I first started researching this back a couple of years ago, the um, references are from like, you know, early 2010, 2012, 2008, over that four-year span. Um, celiac disease was 14 to 16%. But when I talked to Nicole back in February, she said it was as high as like 24 to 25% of children that have Down syndrome um, have celiac disease. It's incredibly high. And that's going to change, especially how you go about introducing your first foods. So if you have a kid that's quote unquote a picky eater or has bouts of emesis or uh, incredible um, distension, this is where we need to pull in GI and allergy. But any one of those things or more likely a combination of two of those things can all impede the recognition and development of hunger cues. Because if you're full of poo, then you feel satiated and you don't want to eat and that will impede your desire to eat, which then comes across as a feeding aversion when in fact it's not. <sighs> okay, that was a lot. <laughs> <laughs> You're like processing all my... And this is why I get pictures of poo sent to my phone. Um, really it's truthfully. It's important. It, yes. Okay, but here's the deal. There are options to get the poo through. Um, peri, um, what is it? Is it Aripad? Am I saying this correctly? Aripad and periactin, the medications that are. Mm -hmm. Yep. They're related to the Z pack. They're. Um, it, when you have a sinus infection, the Z pack, the azithromycin that they put you on, this is like a cousin to that medication. And if anybody has been on the Z pack, then you know how sometimes you go on the Z pack and then. 20 minutes after you take a pill, you have to run to the bathroom. Same concept, okay, but more gentler, for lack of a better phrase. So those are options. Um, we can do x-rays to rule out constipation. There's, yes, there's medical management, but um, in the form of Miralax and magnesium. But I'm yeah. hesitant when anybody starts saying, just start giving the kid Miralax continuously. Like, I feel like we should probably be looking at, okay, but why? Because you know the stuff that Subway got in trouble for um, putting in their bread? It was the white stuff that made it extra white. It's the same stuff that is in your shoes that makes the sole of your tennis shoes extra white. That's the stuff that was in Miralax. Yes, yes. I mean, I don't want to eat that. No, I don't either. No. But there's, I mean, there's American Academy of Pediatrics has a whole host of approved medications for treating constipation. And those should be conversations that you have with the physician when you say, hey, we're backed up. And, you know, get your moms and your dads or whoever, get the parent to take a picture of the little one's stomach at like first thing in the morning and then at the end of the day before they go to bed. And if you see a rapid change, then that's pretty indicative that, you know, we've we we could have some constipation or delayed gastric emptying. Mm -hmm. And it's difficult because it's a cycle of like some kids have reflux and then it's recommended that they put rice cereal in their bottles, which can make them constipated, which makes mm -hmm. them not want like it, not want to eat more. Like if kids not pooping, they're not eating. Let me tell yep. you there have one time it, I went three days and I was the most miserable human being. <laughs> and I feel so bad for these kids because if it's not coming out, you're not going to put want to put more in your stomach. Just plain simple math. I love you. Every mother that just listened said, squeeze a kid out and then take a poo and then get back to me because like you're pretty sure what organs you have left have just fallen from your body. 
Yeah, I have a while before. Oh, Oh, God, that's great. Oh, my gosh. Okay, so this this was a really impassioned episode because we feel very so strongly about this, y'all. But see how it is not easy because there's so many things that all impact each other and and it's piecing those apart. That's why they're such a puzzle. Yes, and these little ones that have Down syndrome typically don't just have one thing going on. Unfortunately, they tend to have multiple things going on. They typically have laryngomalacia, tracheomalacia. They typically have a hole in their heart. They are also known for having an increased risk of pediatric leukemia, which we didn't even get to tonight, and with a higher survival rate, but there is that factor as well. And the complications from, we didn't even cover acid reflux, Aaron. Oh my God, we're so tired. We didn't even cover GERD. GERD. Y'all, the GERD. Oh man, I've seen so much of it. This, I mean. Yes. I've seen it on swallow studies recently. Mm. It's so bad. So that's just it. There's, There's so many different things that could be going wrong. You can't fit them all in an hour. And remember that your little ones can have multiple components. So if you have a physician or if you're working with a specialist who is not willing to make a referral to one practice, try somewhere else. Because what I have found is that I have seen when I get a kid to an amazing ENT and they put a scope in and they see how bad the GERD is, or um, you you get a kid to GI and you know they run a scope in because they're looking to... Um, rule out uh, celiac disease or to see if there's any strictures within the esophagus, which we didn't get to because of the GERD, Uh, they might see damage to the airway or they might see a laryngeal cleft, which we didn't get to. Oh my God. We have to come back for a whole nother hour. We have to do a part two. Okay. Yep. Yep. Put it down. Clefts, strictures. Yup. But that's, that's just it. There's so many different things that it could be. So Go big, go broke, make all the referrals, send everybody donuts. And um, really truthfully, I highly recommend that when you're trying to establish continuity of care for a patient, y'all take a business card, take the report, plan a in-service, go offer a, uh, buy the local pediatrician's nurse's lunch for a day. And then on your way out, oh, hey, by the way, while I'm here, I want to hand you this patient's report that I did. You know, I'm really interested in getting him here, here, and here because of X, Y, and Z. You just sugared them up, sweet talked them, and then close with a favor, mm-hmm. right? My sisters are nurses. I have a sister and a sister-in-law who are nurses. They do well, appreciate this tactic. <laughs> they also, like, just remember that it can be frustrating when you've done all this research and you know all these risk factors and you see these signs and symptoms and, but like these doctors and these other specialists, they know so much about so many other things. Like education is so important. That's why we do what we do because we can see it manifest in something, but we need them to then help dissect what actually is going on. So like, don't, Doctors aren't supposed to know that much about the swallow. That's why speech pathologists also exist. Exist. So like reach out and teach and it can be intimidating, but you know your ish. And that's really, I think, important to stand, you know, don't be intimidated by that because, and don't try not to get too frustrated because like that's not always their job to know all of this. Yes. Okay. So before my tiny humans burst in here, um, Miss Erin, thank you. And I'm going to switch this up to questions. Today, I am asking for your help. It is with the unrelenting support of sponsors, donors, and volunteers like yourself that feedingmatters.org is able to make a positive impact in the lives of children with pediatric feeding disorders. 
By supporting Feeding Matters, you can become a driving force towards systemic change to create a better world for children with pediatric feeding disorders. So donate today at feedingmatters.org backslash donate. Also, thank you because they're putting good out there and they need to be supportive in this initiative. So on behalf of First Bite, just want to say thanks. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode. As well as-